Greetings, glorious humans, gentle ladies, lad men, ladies and gentlemen, dreamers and dreams alike, and welcome to the Devolver Digital Forecast here at forecast.devolverdigital.com. Hi, I'm your co-host, JM. And I am your co-host, Robbie. I'm back, JM. I'm really back this time. We're both back, Robbie. We're both back. Uh, you're back in Seattle, or thereabouts. I'm back in... Thereabouts. Uh, I'm back in London. I'm still in my flat. Thereabouts. Um, Wonderful. Yeah. But we, uh, so I was not around last week. I was sick. I got really sick. Yeah. Yeah. Um, which is unfortunate, but uh, one of those things happens to everyone, more or less. It does. Uh, it does. It was not COVID, though. I did not. No? no I did not get COVID. At least well, that's according that's to good. the tests that I took. Um, nice. Yeah, I just got like a, just a tr- traditional British cold. Yeah. Um, Fair enough. Yeah, it sucked. I haven't had a cold for like two years because I've just been. A, you were knocked out longer than I was, yeah. and I traveled internationally. You did, but you obviously have a stronger constitution than I. Well, I also didn't drink very much on the trip. Oh, the, well, that's true as well. I mean, neither did uh-huh. I. I only drank that one day, um, but I drank drank yeah. all day, so <laughs> it was. Uh, <laughs> It was a bit, yeah, a bit damaging to my, uh, well, to my, to my, to my body and my mind, but I'm back now and everything's <laughs> fine. Everything's absolutely Great. fine. Great. <laughs> Nothing bad happened. Good. Yeah, so that's okay. Good. That's, that's the kind of thing people say when nothing bad exactly. happens. How are you? <laughs> yep. I'm all right. I'm doing okay. I'm back, uh, near Seattle land, um, I've had more trouble adjusting to daylight savings than I did to, uh, I think, jet lag. Oh. Um, yeah, which is weird. But, like, yeah, like, my jet lag, nothing. But, like, I'm still waking up an hour earlier than I want to. Oh. Um, so. How early How yeah, early do you, you want to wake up? <clears throat> I mean, like, seven. Mm, so you're waking up at six. I'm waking up at five. Oh. That's no good. It's not great. No. Yeah, I mean, six six was like I used to wake. Anyway, I used to wake up at six, and it was like, oh, oh this isn't so bad. Look at me, I'm an early bird. But now I'm waking up at five, and I'm like, shit, well, <laughs> this is too early. And it's it, in this part of the country, in this part of the world, it's it's dark. It's like midnight sure. dark outside at six a.m. Anyway, so oh well. Um, well, yeah, but I'm glad you're feeling. I better. am. I uh, have been watching um, Arcane. Is that the League of Legends Netflix show? Fucking League of Legends Netflix show. Is it good? If it's fucking amazing, really? It's so fucking good. What about what is so good about it? (laughs) It's so good. It's gorgeous. Right. It's visually stunning. The sound design and leveling are really fucking good. I know that's a weird thing to say, Mm. but like it's it's really good. And then the writing is fucking phenomenal. And the acting is fucking phenomenal. Like uh, if you had told me that like like oh I've been, you know, I've been dreaming of, you know, adult animation, like a Western style adult animation, like for a long time, like really solid stuff. My dream is always like Song of Ice and Fire as, as an adult animated series would just be fucking killer. Sure. Um, if you told me that like the steampunk adult animation Western show that would blow my mind 
would be fucking League of Legends. I I I I wouldn't have been able to process that because I just I'd be like what what what? But it's so fucking good. And I don't know anything about League of Legends. I don't play the game. I don't care about any of it. But holy shit, Arcane is good. Wow. Like you don't need to know anything going into it. Yeah. Like I cannot. Oh my god. <laughs> Well, I mean, so uh, you've been watching League of Legends. <laughs> no. But uh, how, how about talking to a legal legend? <laughs> how, awesome. how about that? How do you feel about that? <laughs> That's, I would love to talk to a legal legend. Yeah, me too. Robbie. Uh, I've got one right here. Uh, Perfect. <laughs> um, legal legend. Uh, it's uh, Brian Chadwick. Say hello, Brian. Hi, guys. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks. Thanks, thanks for being thanks on. Thanks for being the legal legend that we have been looking for. You are the legend. <laughs> Honest to God, much. that is that was one of the best transitions. That's the best segue yet. I, 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 I do. I do amazing. worry about being in the position of getting a Nobel Prize before I've even started my presidency. So I think we have to... I, I, I've, I've, I, ha, I haven't been, been with Devolver long enough to be a legend, but I'll take it. But I'm cautiously thankful. Well, we'll be the judge of whether or not you're a, le- a legend. Thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> Based entirely on this podcast. <laughs> Um, welcome, Brian, to the forecast. Thank you. Um, would you like to kind of introduce yourself to the listeners and tell us a little bit about what it is that you do? Thanks, Robbie. So I am Devolver's general counsel, and as you have already indicated, I have a legal background. So I am a, a U.S. lawyer, originally from Pennsylvania, Philadelphia, and then I moved over to London in '96 thereabouts and since that time I've become a a British solicitor as well and spent a bit of time in Switzerland and became a Swiss avocat as well so I'm a legal trained person and companies like Devolver often benefit from having a person with legal backgrounds so that not only to review contracts and protect IP but also to just kind of guide the company from time to time on various aspects particularly now that we're a public company makes it more relevant to have its own in-house lawyer sitting at a desk somewhere to be able to answer questions and help fend off the evils of the world to the extent that that's possible. Wow. Nice. How good are you at issuing public apologies <laughs> for digital? Have you been rehearsing? Uh, quite good at it because I've been reading on, on how to do that. And, of course, what you say, obviously, like any good doctor, is that you are sorry people feel the way they feel, but you never actually apologize. <laughs> <laughs> he's got it by jove he's got it <laughs> hoping for um, a, a career in politicians po- politics one day <laughs> yeah so assuming i uh will uh, be arrested at some point sure. are you the person i should call always so okay my, my reason for being for the next decade or so is to make sure that all aspects of Devolver are loved and cared for and protected in every way possible. So basically, not only things like the contracts and arrangements and public things that Devolver gets into, but if all the 
Devolver people themselves need general guidance, then I can be helpful for that. And the great thing about being a general counsel, and it's the it's the paper that covers the cracks of the legal profession, because we, we are the ones who are relatively good at most things, but not particularly great at anything. So when you get, <laughs> when you get arrested, I'm the person you call first because I can arrange to get the lawyer who knows what she's doing or he's doing, and I can be the, the project manager, basically. Oh, it's good to know that I will mm-hmm. have a project manager mm-hmm. uh, on board for my arrest. <laughs> and, and I'll always be a, I'll be a character witness for you forever. Ah, perfect. <laughs> so, um, Brian, what has your, you know, I mean, you know, as much as you want to share, you know, what is your, what has your path been, you know, just leading into, like, how did you find your way to working with Devolver? What is your career's legal you know, how did you become a video game lawyer, et cetera? The video game lawyer stuff started in around 2006. I was a partner in a law firm in the West End in London, and I was the head of corporate law department. It was all very exciting. And one of my clients was a very small, at that time, web game publisher called Miniclip, 2006. And Miniclip helped create and propel a game called Club Penguin, one of the very first you know, sort of multiplayer games, if you like, or, or massive multiplayer games. R.I.P. Mm. R.I.P. Club Penguin. Exactly. And <laughs> Miniclip made all kinds of mistakes with Club Penguin. So effectively, they designed it and developed it, developed it, but it permitted the developer to go off and own all of it. And then they helped then, pu- they published it and helped make the game a, a, a roaring success. And Walt Disney came in to Miniclip and offered them an outrageous amount of money to buy Miniclip, the uh, many, 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 many hundreds of millions of dollars on a very small company. And I was the lawyer for that deal. At the end of the deal, the two Miniclip guys felt that the eye-watering, life-changing amount of money was not enough. So they said no thank you to Disney. And when that deal was over, they asked me if I wanted to come in and join the company and be their general counsel and be a director. And I said no, because they just turned down an enormous amount of money. And I thought they were insane. So I said, no, thank you. <laughs> and then over the next few years, and very flatteringly, we continued to do more work together. And I began to learn more about the games industry, 2007, 2008. And eventually in 2008, I decided that being a big-time corporate lawyer was probably not for me. And maybe getting into the games industry was a bit more my style. Being a, you know, There are lots of different kinds of lawyers, and some lawyers really revel in the regulations and the technical aspects of things and dotting the I's and crossing the T's and I'm oh I have always been more of a philosophical lawyer the big picture sort of person who likes the commercial and the business aspects of law and how they work together with the commercial enterprises so when these chaps invited me on the you know 10th time or something I finally said yes <laughs> and, and and wonderfully it worked you know wonderfully joining Miniclip was really terrific and spent the next eight years there you know as a director of the group and helping to grow the company to many times its size and, and ultimately selling it to Tencent in 2015, which was really exciting. So um, after that, uh, you know, left Miniclip and came back into law and started with some of the big law firms, the big lo- global law firms, to start and found their games law practice. Because you know, w- wonderfully, the kind of eight years that I was at Miniclip, I developed quite a good network of mobile games friends, and I behaved myself pretty well. So for the most part, people would take my phone call if I called them. 
because I was I tried to generally avoid being a real asshole to people. So that was okay. And that worked, you know, sort of building a good games practice and began to become known in Europe as the, you know, as the games lawyer, someone who's a bit more credible because these law firms all wanted to get into the industry because they saw the money mounting up and the, the mergers and acquisitions happening and the IPOs happening and everybody wanted to pile in, but they recognized they, they did not have a credible entry point. So wonderfully, I was that entry point and law firms were offering me, you know, some nice positions and so forth. And the one that I took ultimately was a, a company who now does work with Field Fisher uh, for Devolver called Field Fisher. And they offered a, a post for me to be the head of their kind of global M&A, tech M&A practice. So I did that for a number of years. And a mutual friend, the way Devolver works really, is a, a friend in America <laughs> who I had some, a really lovely dinner and drinks with. And we shared some stories about athletics. And we had, we had a good common background. He, knew, he knows our, our CEO. He knows Doug Morin. And when he and Doug were chatting a year ago, and Doug, <laughs> Doug told me later that he said kind of a funny thing to this guy, William, that Devolver's looking for a lawyer who's U.S. and U.K. qualified, who lives you know, in Europe, who knows games and is a corporate <laughs> lawyer and things. And he basically came all the way down to saying, and is named Brian. Like it was pretty much all the way. <laughs> this guy, so this, this guy, William, said, I think I know the guy. And made made the introduction and and wonderfully and luckily for me it took very little persuading for me this time so i had a chance to get to meet doug and and then the the first devolver person that i met in person actually physically i was graham i met graham Uh, he came around my house we had a chat oh no um and i still wanted to do it so i didn't dissuade (laughs) (laughs) i know yeah brave (laughs) um but that's how i got here jm i i that's how i got to devolver and and that would have been the pretty early part of this year. It would have been January, February this year, which allowed me to join actually in April, you know, once I was able to extricate myself from my, you know, from my firm. Lovely. Was the, uh, idle curiosity, uh, was the Tencent buyout uh, comparable to the Disney buyout? Well, um, I would say no. I think dollar for dollar, no. So I think, I think this is relatively okay. public. So the... Disney offers, at the time in 2006, Miniclip was doing about 13 million in revenue, and the Disney offer was 600 something million. Uh, And they. Holy shit. Fucking hell. If if you went up to a four year old and you said, if you give me $13, I'll give you you $600, the four year old -old would say, fine. Um, But these these guys didn't. and then the ultimate, <laughs> the ultimate Tencent deal, it had all kinds of layers and machinations and things, and it probably ended up being lower, I think, ultimately, yeah. Yep. Crikey. But, it's, but, it's, but it was a whole mix of things by then. It was, it was a trickier mix, the way the Tencent deal worked. It's possible that the people ended up making more money ultimately, but it would be close. Okay. All right. So, well, I'm glad, it, I'm, glad it, I'm glad the story still has a happy. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> We're a public company now, Brian. Yes. Um, what does that mean? <laughs> <laughs> I think one of the, the first things that people need to understand is that, or at least to take on board, is that there are lots of different kinds of public companies. So there are most people's first idea of a public company is the retail idea. The fact that 
mom and pop can walk down to their local Charles Schwab broker and buy some shares. Or you can get onto your online eToro app and buy some shares. Devolver did not do a retail float. So we mostly are an institutional company. And the reason for that is we really like the idea of having a gradual transition from being a private company with a really strong culture and not throwing ourselves to the whims of the market overnight, but rather to have a measured, controlled entrance to it. So what we did, what many companies did, is we went on to the smaller market in London. So there's kind of the growth market, a bit like the NASDAQ compared to the New York Stock Exchange. London has the same setup. So London has the London Stock Exchange, the LSE, and then it has AIM, which is the alternative investment market. And effectively, the alternative market is the growth market, the smaller company, smaller cap market. So we went on to that market, and that market allows a company to float only a small percentage of its shares, and even to do so by selling those shares to big institutions and specific investors rather than selling them just to the public. So we are, we are that kind of company where we're public, but we're not like a big open retail company. And uh, that's super for us because it gives us time to kind of find our feet, to let people like me learn how to be a public company, you know, a director or, or not a director, but like an advisor to the company, pardon. And it gives the market time to think about us, understand us and so forth. So that's probably the biggest thing to get is that we are public, but we're not kind of a giant retail. So you, people don't just go out, buy and sell shares every day with us. It's we're, we're, we're slower, which we like. Probably the second thing with being a public company is we now are subject to a lot more regulation. But again, by being on the growth market, the regulation is slightly less, which is fabulous. So we didn't go right to the top and change our culture and our, our identity and our practices and adopt all these policies where we're going again, we're going steps into it rather than fully diving into the deep end. So we have a bit more regulation to worry about, but it's, it's not too much, which is nice. And then it, would, would, would we have to, on the bigger market, would we have to start publishing good games? <laughs> <laughs> no, we can, we can always we do doing things the way we do we, it. We, the fundamental thing we need to be, JM, is we need to always just be ourselves. We have to be Devolver, and that's the that's the fundamental thing. That's what the institutions Perfect. are excited about and what we're excited about. Yeah. So we publish if we, if whatever we, we like. If we started publishing good games, people would worry that something was wrong. <laughs> They'd feel like they did so <laughs> No. So, uh, Brian, is yeah. it fair to say mm-hmm. that you really love law? Uh, I think... No, I think the... uh... (laughs) You're hired! (laughs) I I would say uh, that's a really tricky one, Robbie. So I'd say no. I certainly would say... So I've got a a history uh, and philosophy degrees, and those two things lend themselves well to law. You know, it has a nice combo of enjoying the the theory of it. But I, I think... Being an in-house lawyer suits me much better because I, when I fall in love, I fall in love with the business of the clients I used to have or the companies I work for or indeed with Devolver and less the law itself, that makes sense. So I like the, uh, yeah, that's much more attractive and interesting and inspirational to me than the, than the law itself. Do you have any uh, favorite lawyers? 
You're going to ask for favorite lawyers. <laughs> oh, yeah. Favorite, favorite laws, but first, favorite lawyers. So at the, at the moment, the lawyer who helped us do the IPO is a chap called Ed Westhead. Uh, and I think he's terrific. So he's currently my favorite lawyer. But, you know, I've, you know if memory is short, right? So in a couple of weeks, he'll be replaced. But at, at, the, at, <laughs> at the moment, he's my favorite. What about and, historically? Any, any all-time... <laughs> Do you have an all-time list? So I, I, have, I have a favorite lawyer, but it's a person that I didn't really work for, if that makes sense. So there was a, a Canadian woman who was the head of a law firm called Sherman and & Sterling. And in the 1990s, I came over with you know, a sparkle in my eye and a carpet bag suitcase to London, hoping to make my big dreams come true. And I went from law firm to law firm in London. I think I did about 40 interviews and I was rejected from all of them. So I was zero for 40. And in, in most sports, that's poor. Um, so I was zero for 40. And the last one that I went to was this firm called Sherman and Sterling. And Sherman and Sterling is a huge law firm. It's a massive, you know, billion plus dollar law firm. And at the time, Sherman and Sterling had a hiring policy where you had to be from one of five Ivy League law schools only. And you pretty much had to be a New York lawyer only for them even to talk to you. So I lied and got the interview uh, based on a paralegal <laughs> position they were looking for. And when I got there, I was sitting across the table from this, this uh, managing partner, a woman, Pam, who's Canadian, as I said. And she said, you're not a New York lawyer. I said, no. And she's because she could hear my funny Philly accent. And I and she said, <laughs> and you're not, you didn't go to Harvard. And I said, no. And she said, and I said, well, she said, well what can you do? And I said, well, said, I'm a fantastic writer because my mother was an English teacher, so I'm really good at grammar. And she said, well, I've got a guy who's writing a book, and maybe you could ghostwrite and finish the book for him. So she took a chance on me, if you like, and that was got my toe in the door. And now it's 25 years later, and I've created a whole life in London thanks to Pam. Wow. <laughs> thanks, Pam. Thanks, Pam. That's great. You're man, Pam. She definitely was. Wow. I, well, okay. My favorite lawyer. Um, hmm. Who's my favorite lawyer? Uh, so many to Brian, choose from. Brian, you're up. You're up. You're up there. I'm top five? Lie. Top you're, five? You're top five. Cool. You're top I'll take five. I'll take Definitely that. top five. Um, I think my favorite lawyer is uh, Jackie Childs from Seinfeld. Just ahead what about of, you, JM? Have you got a favorite just, just ahead of Lionel Hutz. Oh, I mean, Hutz. yeah, Lionel Hutz, by <laughs> the way. Um, uh, yeah, uh, um, yep, Lionel Hutz. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, I don't have a favorite lawyer, Robbie. I don't know. Oh, uh, I'm sure that there are uh, plenty of people out there doing great work uh, in law, helping other people, either helping with environmental cases or helping underrepresented people or people who, you know, don't have the financial ability to represent themselves in criminal or civil cases. And a uh, huge shout out to those people who are using law to help other people in the world. Because uh, it is a confusing landscape and it can be really, uh, you know, mind boggling for a lot of us that aren't versed in legalese. So, you know, it's nice to have uh, good people out there who are, you know, watching out. Sure. And, uh, it's like having a well-experienced Sherpa to guide you through the canyons uh, of that kind of person you talk about, which is the, the person who's in the trenches really helping make a difference 
And that's always very, that's inspirational. I think, JM, you're right on on that stuff. That's, and that takes a lot of courage to be that kind of lawyer because you make very little money and you are, it's a tough life. You know, it's a, it's a tough life because then you're, mm. bat, you're battling your whole life. It's tough. Yeah. And then there's like these, you know, I guess it's, it's kind of breaks down because there's like these gold plated, like evil Sherpas out there. <laughs> They're just like trying to bring the mountain down on your head because it, you know, reveals the gold mines for them. Um, I, I'm curious, uh, just going back to the whole IPO thing and going public mm-hmm. thing. Um, just a couple, I have a couple, you know, questions. There's one, uh, it's something that we, you know, that you talked to us before the actual IPO day, but just about the motivations for an IPO and how it helps Devolver specifically. Like, I don't know, like how much you can talk about that, you know, but I, I think it's probably okay, but I don't know. Um, but then the other one is just a more general question about going public in the stocks, because this stuff is is kind of obtuse to a lot of us. Um, but like, how does going public, like, how does that get us money? How does the stock market, how does the stock market actually work? to help a company financially where does the money go how does the where does the actual change like how does that work like do people buy the <laughs> stocks and then we get the money but then if our stock goes down we don't owe them as much if they want to sell it but if it goes up we have to like how does that work right well i, I can i like that question a lot better than the motivations one because the motivation one okay. is slightly slightly more delicate because uh, sure. i because which i can just i can definitely describe and i'm delighted to but how the stock market works is is kind of fun. And I guess what I'll do is, knowing that our listeners probably are well-versed in legal Latin phrases, I can probably use a fair amount of Latin, I would think, to describe the various rights. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> um, the, reason, the reason that I say that is because effectively, you know, a share is a form of right. It's, a, it's an asset, even though it's, it's called an incohate asset. So it's an unfinished asset. It's an intangible asset. And... The way that we get money, JM, is we can we can sell those shares to people and they buy them. You know, so it's uh, they they spend money and it's called capital that comes into the company. And when you're a private company, what you have to do is you have to invite people to come in and buy shares and become you know kind of one of your main shareholders. And you do a dilution, and it's it's always very complicated to go through a particular investment process a fundraising process and as a private company when you're a public company you have a much wider pool of shareholders and you can raise money by two ways you can either go to all of your existing shareholders and say um hey jm you have you know 100 shares and we would like to offer you a chance to buy another 100 perhaps at a slightly discounted price to the market so say the market price today is a dollar and we're going to sell it to you for 90 cents and you think to yourself, yeah, I'd like to have another 100 shares, and it's a bit of a discount. That's cool. So you send the company a check for 100 times 90 cents, and you, the, we, then the company issues you 100 new additional shares, so you then have 200 shares. And that's, that's called a private placing. That's a placing that's done to our existing shareholders. And we can do that if we want to raise a small amount of money to do a big project or fund a big project or make an investment or expand somewhere globally or who knows what do an evil takeover of someone we can raise money to do that the other the other way to do it is to do a much wider one which is an offering and an offering is when we say to to the world and maybe now we do start looking at retail we've we finished our period of time or we think we've settled in with the institutions we we believe we have our mechanisms and our systems working well so devolver says to the market we're going to make an offering a public offering 
and we are going to offer a million of our shares. And instead of being at $1, we're going to offer them at $4 or some other bigger number. And people who believe in our story and believe in who we are, they'll, they, will, they will pay that $4 per share. And we raise you know, many millions of dollars. And that comes into our bank account. And we issue them a new share, and they become shareholders. And, and effectively, the, the total number of shares that we have out there in the world just goes up by whatever number we sell. And the, and the money comes in. And your question then about what happens to the shareholder, basically the shareholder is a person who buys a right in the company, this incohate right, and they win or lose. So the company, for the most part, I mean, there are lots of regulations which protect that investor to some degree. But in theory, that person has very little rights against the company if we go out of business or, or lose their money or if the share price goes down or the investment we make actually turns out to be a bad one or all those kinds of things. The shareholders, is, is buying a share is a risk, a risk, you know, risk investment. Yeah. So that, that shareholder, by company law, both in Delaware and in London, doesn't have too much recourse against us you know, unless we lie. Which we won't do, and that's why you have me to make us not lie. <laughs> it's an uphill battle. Bro. <laughs> <laughs> okay, but, but that's basically it. So it's it's mostly about using this using the market to have uh, a quicker, more structured way to raise money by selling, by offering or placing new shares, and having people buy them and have cash come into the business. And that cash then is unrestricted, which means it just comes in as capital. And we could use it to, you know, fix the light fittings as much as we could use it to make a really strategic investment. We can, we can, it comes in, as I say, unrestricted to our, to how we like to use it. Cool. So we can buy coffee machines. A hundred coffee machines. Well, I've, um, <laughs> so I just finished the legal team budget and we're going to go with, Gold-plated cowboy boots, a fur coat, and fur hat—more like the kind of pimp daddy sort of look. We're gonna, we're gonna go for oh, that. Oh, okay. Gonna, so that, and those are expensive, you know. So we're gonna, we're gonna buy those. That's true. Yeah, yeah. I would love a gold-plated coffee machine, <laughs> just for me. When, uh, when, when, uh, when someone sells their stock, when someone who has stock sells it, mm -hmm. where did some? Does there need to be someone else out there wanting to buy it before they can sell it? Is that Correct. how that works? That is exactly right. Okay. And there. In most countries, luckily the ones that we are in, so Delaware and London, which are countries, now those, the, those two places, if no one will buy the shares, then often the company itself can buy them, it can, and they can be called treasury shares. Once a share is created and sold, or created and issued, then in legal theory it exists forever until it's canceled. So um, Brian buys some shares in Devolver and Devolver issues me a new share, I am then a shareholder. Later, I tap on my eToro app and I sell those shares. Then someone else holds them and on and on it goes until one day maybe the company says we want to buy back shares. So we do a, we do a share buyback because we think there are too many shares in the world. We think, oh dear, we've been issuing shares and issuing shares and now we have 10 billion shares and that's a bit ridiculous. So we're going to buy back a billion shares for a penny or something. We buy them all back, and then we can cancel them. So a share exists, and it just keeps getting traded and traded and traded until the company buys it back and cancels it. Okay. Then it's terminated. Cool. 
terminated. <laughs> I thought I'd offer that. Um, <laughs> um, have you been involved in IPOs previously? Yes. So when I was just a very junior lawyer, more like kind of UPA stage, I did <laughs> um, part of the 1999 internet bubble where people were floating all these companies on the stock exchange that had no real value. I, I did that. So I was part of the problem of taking, oh. taking companies that had huge valuations based on thin air and, and lots of masking descriptions like, oh, this company is pre-revenue. And of course, if you think about that, <laughs> if, you, if you think about that for a moment, that, that's an optimistic way to say it doesn't make any money. Um, yeah, you can, you, you, we, we're planning to make money. Yeah, my, it's a bit like, I mean, the three of us are pretty wealthy at the moment, right? So you, could, uh, <laughs> you just hope that one day that happens. So these, uh, I, was, I was responsible for floating pre-revenue companies myself. So I did quite a few of them. And that was, again, in my younger days. And I left that world a long, long time ago. But, at, you know, but I, when the AIM float came around for us, it certainly wasn't entirely new. Although it was a little bit rusty, right? Well, you seem to be handling it okay so far. Thank you very much. Thank you. I like to read. I like to <laughs> read, right? So, re reading is a good is a good skill set for a lawyer. So, if you just keep reading, eventually you'll figure figure it out. Um, uh, what do you like to read for fun? Do you literally like to read legal documents for fun? No. So I, I am part of the kind of crowd of people which you guys may be the same where i often will have five or so books on the go at any given time that i'm kind of halfway through a bit oh, of a, yeah. a bit of yeah. a bit of a starter um the book yeah. that i have in my bag right now is one of, a book that i'm really enjoying which is called never split the difference by chris voss if you've read this one yet but nice. chris voss was the lead fbi hostage negotiator and he wrote a book on on emotional human behavior negotiating. So how to negotiate all the, the kind of Harvard method about getting to yes and win-win, all that stuff, he thinks is all completely bullshit. So he says, no, no, that's not how you do it. Because if you're a hostage negotiator, there is no win-win. There's only like win or death, basically. So he, um, yeah. so he comes at it from a different angle and never split the difference, is full of loads of great stories of his hostage negotiating, but then also loads of great human behavioral tactics on how to negotiate to get what you want and in in a nice way not like in a weird evil way and it's when you apply the principles of the book it can often be a bit jedi mind trick stuff it's it's astounding it kind of works and you think oh that worked interesting yeah. so i'm reading that and that's good fun and, and the other book i'm reading at the moment is called the uh i think it's called the the destruction of knowledge or the death of knowledge and it's written by the librarian for I think it's Cambridge University, who does a historical tour of times in human history where libraries were burned as a precursor to evil empires like fascism or uh, or destruction. And it's this it's a poignant look at how we today are destroying knowledge and how it's a precursor to what will soon be the Dark Ages. So it's a very mm. it's a very bleak look, but it's fascinating and a very well researched book wow uh i'm not reading anything like that <laughs> <laughs> i just bought uh 
I just bought a book called uh, what is it called? Heavy, I think it's called. Um, and it's a book about uh, heavy metal. Uh, yeah, it's called Heavy by Dan Franklin. How metal changes the way we see the world. Nice. And I haven't started it yet. So um, I'll let you all know how it is. Um, but the guy that wrote it uh, was a, is a music writer who uh, wrote on a site called... Oh, goodness me. What was it called? The Quietus, um, which is a really good music website. Um, but yeah, I stumbled across his book. So I've just bought that. It's quite new, I think. So it came out last year. So that's what I'm reading. All about uh, how heavy metal uh, yeah, influences culture. Wow. Yeah. I look forward you know, to we're coming. We're coming... We're coming at this from slightly different angles. Yeah, but I like to think we've got all the bases covered. Well, I, I look forward to your review. I'll, I'll be in. That's interesting. <laughs> It'll be on Goodreads. <laughs> JM, what I'm are you reading? reading? Balzac, Balzac, and the Little Chinese Seamstress. Nice one. It's uh, yeah, it's uh, by Dai Cixi, Cixi. Uh Someone loaned it to me. Um, I'm, I'm a little ways into it. It's about a couple of upper class boys who have been who were remanded i think it's fictionalized um historical fiction kind of thing um but i guess some like upper class kids that were remanded to a village in china for like re-education like to be like like during mao's uh china communist china uh and i did a book exchange with that and i exchanged um oh what is her name octavia butler's uh parable of the sower uh, which is uh, a book about like being a, a kid uh, growing up during 2024. This was written in the 90s, but uh, uh, 2024 it's kind of a dystopian, you know, future thing. Right. But it's it's not really like a whoa, so crazy dystopian future. It's more like some mega corporations are very very rich, and everyone else seems to be starving and poor and fighting amongst each oh. other for the scraps. Wow. Um, so yeah, you know. So when you talk about grim futures, I'm like, uh huh, yep, grim future. Yep, here we are. Yep, this is this is what's happening. <laughs> have you? We just have you ever had a book that you read for a bit and then you just couldn't finish it? You stopped it because it was too either too heavy or too upsetting, or not so much that it was just simply boring, but one that just you just didn't finish sure. it. I feel like I have. Um, I'm tr- I can't think of I like you, you ask the question and there's like a, a visceral imprint of a memory mm-hmm. there mm-hmm. but uh, I don't remember what the book would have been uh, but something's I, coming up yeah I've never I've never stopped reading a book because it was too kind of heavy but I did read <laughs> uh, the book A Monster Calls by Patrick Ness uh, made me uncontrollably emotional for about the last 15 pages um and i was literally uh, like continuing to read because i was enjoying it but i was like deeply deeply emotional and i had to and i and i was trying to read the last 15 pages i think it was like something like that the the last part of this book anyway um through like genuinely like i had like snot running out of my nose and i was like (laughs) crying (laughs) and i was trying to finish this book it was like it was tough going but it was really good like it was a really good book but that's the only time i can think of where i was really like struggling with mm. a book just because it like had such like an emotional weight to it 
but uh yeah i've never i don't think i've ever stopped reading a book so i've what about you yeah well i've i stopped fairly recently i mean there's there's one book that i i own i finished because i finished recently that was i found it was very very emotional but for that same reason you finished it robbie and this was uh, nickel boys by colson woodhead the oh, nickel yeah. boys the the awful story about the kind of boys who were uh, murdered and and things in it by by their school teachers and then abused and and then they they kind of came back many years later in the U- in southern U.S. states. But the book that I that I couldn't read was the something like the it was the common commoner's history of the United States. Have you heard about this book, the commoner's history of the United States? Basically, it is it's the other view of all of U.S. history, right? So it's the it's the view of the native americans who were slaughtered it's the view of the african slaves who were imprisoned and slaughtered it's the view of the caribbean people who were slaughtered it was the view like literally kind of everything ends with the word slaughtered and after after about a and the book is vast it's 600 pages and after about 100 pages or so i just i had such a visceral reaction to it i really had to put it down it was really difficult to read to have everything that you've learned in history turn on its head and not only turn on its head but pretty awful you know like really diabolical and desperate and um genocide over and over again and so forth and raping and pillaging and murdering and after yeah again after a hundred pages or so of that i just kind of had to look away which uh you know may, maybe maybe this podcast right now encourages me to go back and read it to, to be strong and and be strong and, and confront maybe. the true history but it's a, t- yeah. it's a tough one it's grim there's yeah there, uh, there's a good book called uh, Natives mm. by a man called Akala who is a um he's like a he's a writer um he's a, a rapper as well but he's written a story called Natives which is about kind of the Windrush generation and um y- y- yeah basically growing up as uh you know under that f- sort of first wave of mm-hmm uh west indian immigrants and uh in the uk and that's a similar that's a similar type of thing it's like this is what really happened all these all these yeah all these major events that happened uh in you know the last sort of 50 years in the uk that you're probably well aware of well this is what it was like Mm. for us you know and uh yeah it's yeah it's a sobering read as well Mm. very very good one I recommend it to anybody. Okay, thank you. Is interested. I'll, I'll put that on my on my bedside table with the other four books that are currently started. I'll, I'll, um, <laughs> yeah. I'll start that as well. Put it on the side. Fourteen ninety one is pretty good too. Mm. I'm sure y'all have heard of that one. Yeah, sure. But it's uh, is that, that. I guess Christ- that's about the... Christopher Columbus and yeah. Well, yeah, 1491 is because, you know, Christopher Columbus landed in 1492 or whatever, and 1491 is about the Americas before um, – europeans arrived it's it's not i mean it's depressing uh but it's not it's i found it a lot more exciting and interesting to be like holy shit these cultures were like amazing and they Mm. were huge like they were real you know like it it really like it seems like the the disease is Mm. what mostly wiped the people out like Mm -hmm. possibly like up to like 80 90 percent of the population Mm -hmm. uh was wiped out by disease but i mean it's just like you just don't get a lot of history of like it's it, it just filled with a lot of history of South America and North America. Like, um, I mean, the the Incan uh, roads, like they were so rich and prosperous that they just fucking built highways all the time, mm. like because they didn't have anything else to do with their money. <laughs> um, 
but like a lot of the farming techniques that they used were just like it's it's uh i mean it's a real shame that europeans uh came over and did like they did over here there's a few history books like i've got like one called paper and it's about like the history of paper and it's one of those things where an author like just gives you the history of like a really fundamental thing and it's really cool and exciting and then things get colonial i'm like all right i'm out and i check out the book i'm like i know how this story i know how this part of the story goes yeah sorry about that there is a podcast like that and it's a british one what the heck is it called it's really funny and it's it's a c- comedic podcast but effectively it's four comedians and each week they take a fact basically a fact like the invention of the of the brazier or something or the first i don't know hand doctor or just like whatever they take some kind of crazy fact and then the show explores it with actual historical factual knowledge but they tell a lot of it in a very funny way and i'll 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 remember it and i'll tell you about it i listened to it a couple of times yeah uh, it it is really good fun if if you're a person who likes things like the history of paper then you might like this podcast because it is it, it is truthful historical facts but it's delivered in a really funny way and the facts are always curious and funny and silly and you know it's kind of like really that was and it's yes that's what happened you know, kind of stuff. So. yeah hook me up Hist- history of the world in six glasses is another good book it's 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 the history of the world divided by beverages so it starts with beer then there's wine then there's tea then there's <laughs> liquor or i think it's liquor then tea then coffee then coca-cola and it's just like the beverages that like most influence the world, you know, for oh, better wow. or for you know, Coca-Cola. But it's like, it's, it's one of those things like you learn about the history of a little bit and you're like, oh, every, like all these things are tied in together. It was really exciting. Cool. But yeah. Yeah. I want to know facts. Uh, we do have some, some, some questions from, uh, from some folks for you, Brian, sure. uh, since you are our general counsel. Um, I have a question from a friend, Nigel L., uh, you know what? That's too obvious. Um, I'll go N. Lowry. Mm-hmm. Um, he asks, uh, if I am hypothetically involved in a hit and run mm-hmm. of a pedestrian, mm-hmm. am I absolved of any legal culpability, spelled culpability wrong, mm-hmm. um, if, am I absolved of any legal culpability if I flee the scene with the wallet of the person I hit? Mm. Good question. And, and uh, probably, <laughs> a quite a, probably quite a common concern of most of the listeners, I would say. <laughs> so I think, yeah. I think uh, Anne Lowry has really hit on something quite useful. So there's, like, like an onion, there are so many layers to peel with this particular one. So something that you first have to get into is there are yeah, that's a mix of criminal law and tort law, which is negligence, at the same time. So, um, and Lowry, you know, what he or she has hit upon is this concept that criminal law is the social minimum, right? So it's the it's the lowest level that a given society will tolerate with its own members, and it's this is back to John Locke and, and Hobbes, where we we make our social contract with our government, with each other, with the police force, with all these things 
what we think is the lowest acceptable behavior. And in theory, in different cultures, it's different. You know, some cultures have criminal laws that are different than other cultures' criminal laws because their own social minimum is different for that particular behavior. So what Ann Lowry is talking about involves some criminal behavior because we know that vehicular homicide or hitting people with your car, although to be fair, Ann Lowry didn't say hit and run with what kind of vehicle. We assume a car, but it could have been a skateboard, right? So say it's a skateboard. Yeah. Um, There's a crude drawing with the question, and I think it's supposed to be a car. It's or a, a car. Hand, but I think okay. it's a car. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so if we say if we say it's a car, and and you know you can try to find mitigating circumstances. Let's say that it's you know it's a Tesla, so it's a, a wonderful green car using clean energy and so forth. So maybe that begins to change our our visceral feeling, but the criminal statute remains, and the social minimum is that N. Lowry or a person that he's writing for hit someone and then try to flee the scene. So that's two crimes. So one is the hitting the person, and the second one is fleeing. But interestingly, then there's the onion peels a bit further, and then there's tort law, which is negligence. And tort law is kind of civil wrongs. And this is more like it's negligence amongst each other, which is a higher form of social minimum. And it's more like manners. You know, what we think duties we owe to each other in our society by interacting with each other. And that's the thing about fleeing, whether he felt bad about it, if there's a, there's a moral aspect to it or an ethical aspect to it, stealing the wallet, a little bit of criminal, but also it's kind of negligence, it's tort. So I would say with all those things, there are generally very few mitigating factors the, the, where the chain of causation can be broken by some other factor. And criminal law tends not to permit that, whereas tort law does. So I'd say that on balance, even if he were driving a Tesla, he he would be culpable, and and he would have to do he would have to do some jail time. But we'd try to get him out of it on a technicality in some way. Great. All we know for sure is that N. Lowry is almost definitely guilty of the crime <laughs> they're hypothetically suggesting. Quite. It also depends on the state, uh, of course, because yeah. the, that kind oh, of crime sure. is is a as many people may know in the United States, there is no federal common law. So there's no, there's federal statutory law and legislation, but there's no common law, things like driver's licenses or marriages and births and deaths and these things and breaking entry and burglary and robbery, all that stuff is state law. So hitting someone with your car and fleeing the scene would be a matter for state. So if this happened in say Pennsylvania, then you would look to the Pennsylvania statutes on hitting people with your car. Well, good. I, I hope that helps you out, um, mysterious are there, friend. Are there, just a quick aside: Are there any places where it's it's not frowned upon to hit someone with your car? Law enforcement. <laughs> <laughs> so it's probably what happens now. This this gets into the acceptable social minimums, Robbie. Right. So you figure if in a horrible you know, futuristic, ancient sort of world where the thing you hit has less humanity than something else that you might hit. So say, for instance, you're in a country where, say, women are not valued as highly or orphans or slaves or people who are of a very low caste or people who are, you know, drug addicts or have a disability of some kind, rather than places where those people are valued, then maybe it's still a crime, but perhaps the second tier of that crime is what would be the sentencing or punishment or retribution, and maybe those things are much softer. You know, so 
It's Whoa. it's possible. Brian, you just reminded me of the book I stopped reading. <laughs> <laughs> it was it was Sex and Punishment. It was a recommended book, and it was Sex and Punishment. And it was about the history of law around uh, human sexuality, oh. and I had to stop reading it because it was so fucking mm. grim. Because the earliest rape laws uh, weren't about um, the violation of a human being, but they were about property damage. Of course, yeah. <laughs> So t- to this day, and, and Robbie can be prepared to be outraged. Are you ready for outrage if you're, if you're sta- standing by? So to this day, 2021, a, if it's not legally permis- permitted or permissible for a, a woman to witness her husband's signature because the law in England still believes that a, a woman is most likely to be witnessing her husband's signature under duress and not of her free will. So it's generally seen that a woman witnessing the signature of her husband is either voidable or on its face invalid. So you have to find a witness who is not to your wife. But conversely, a man can witness his wife's signature because it's assumed in law that he's not under duress, that he's making it of his free will, and he's fully apprised of the fact. So a woman is still slightly lower in her ability to witness the signature than a man. Oh God. At, at law. Fucking hell. Yep. You're right. I am outraged. Go for it. So, Jesus. and and as JM very wisely said, a woman was a chattel, you know, a chattel, like property, till more recently than you might think. So in Massachusetts, a woman was still a chattel up until fairly recently, actually. Not, like, not that long ago. Not kind of 1820, but more like... 1970s or something like it wasn't that long ago and you know in law fuck jeez yep how's your outrage amateur now <laughs> i mean it's just i mean it's fascinating to learn this stuff do you know what i mean but like at the same time it's like disgusting me yep. jesus kurt vonnegut said we're still in the dark ages yeah oh shit, shit. Mm-hmm. But th- these kinds of things, so to get, get all the way back to Robbie's initial question about loving the law, I think in this theoretical zone, this is much more interesting to me for its philosophical, moral, and social context. Like it's, and it, it's fun to sit around the dinner table and talk about these cases and debate and explore them, the, the moral, the you know, religious, the philosophical, the historical, the current, the, and all that dialectic is really good fun. But it's the, when you're kind of sitting in, turning that into pen on paper it's a bit less fun mm. you know, then you, when you have to actually apply yeah. it it's a bit less fun it's, it's fun to pontificate about it I'm afraid of taking things any darker than they are <laughs> <laughs> look like a, like a famous lawyer once said was it a famous lawyer? probably uh, the, night is dark. the night is darkest before the dawn I'm just, I'm just terribly misquoting something I thought Harvey Dent said in Batman but I don't think it was, <laughs> I think it was uh, Commissioner Gordon machine. Commissioner Gordon though is the lawman so mm, mm. <laughs> it's all thematically linked uh, exactly uh, and we at Devolver are vigilantes nice <laughs> corporate vigilantes um yep that's that's all i've got you asked me you asked me earlier about kind of favorite laws and things and i'll, I'll round that off because there's 
there's, here we there's go. one thing that let's go out on a high <laughs> there's one and it's a, and a bit of advice free advice to all of our listeners so one thing that happens as an in-house counsel more frequently than it ever happens as kind of external counsel and that is reminding all of the commercial people so people like you um that the conduct that you make and the way that you behave and the things you say can give rise to legal obligations, legal rights, and kind of legal contracts. So people often forget in this day and age where we write so much of the things we write that actually perfectly valid, perfectly formed legal contracts can happen verbally or orally. And not only that, but legal contracts can happen by conduct. So you can be completely silent and not say a word and not write a word, but the way that you act, the way you respond to an offer, can be deemed acceptance and can be deemed that a contract is formed. And I mention that because in the games world, when we are working on a development milestone schedule and the legal contracts are still being worked through, but the devs are already working and we're already paying or we're already talking to people or the project is already up and running and things are happening, but the legal contracts are nowhere near being done yet, we actually have a verbal agreement at that point and the contract is up and running by conduct rather than by law. So something that I find really fascinating is this concept of contract by conduct, and it happens every day. And it's the thing that happens a lot in companies that work on projects like we do, and it happens in lots of similar companies as well. So I, find, I always find that very fascinating, that if people wanted to, and wonderfully they don't, because there's so much good faith and trust and friendship in these kinds of com companies and the industries, so people don't turn around and say, actually, even though we have nothing signed yet, everyone's been conducting themselves and acting as though we have a deal. We have some kind of deal, if you like, even if it's not the final one. And that's enough. So we have a contract. And they would be right. The courts would say, yeah, you know, you, you, Mr. Brian, you started behaving as though the contract were already formed, even though the written one's not done yet. And that's close enough. So I find that really interesting. I think it's a good... So again, for people, lots of people who listen to the forecast probably do that themselves. They think, well, let's just start working because the legal stuff will follow behind at some point. And actually by doing that, the contract is formed. Wow. Huh. How about that? Wow. I've Are learned there... so much today. <laughs> do, do you have examples of that being used in the world? Sure. I mean, let's say, for instance, there were a large games publisher Let's call it Zevolver. And this, co this company is working on projects with developers around the world and that are making fantastically cool indie games. And as the various teams are getting closer and closer to defining and, and really identifying the milestones, identifying the payment schedules, identifying how the whole game development document is going to work, and then they start to speak with either internal counsel or external counsel to start putting documents together. But the dev team in some place somewhere, um, in, in the Ukraine or in Poland or in Russia or in wherever they are, they, they start to just get pretty excited. And they reckon that they want to get a jump on the milestone schedule and start working. And if there are emails flying back and forth between Zevolver and that dev studio, then those, that's an acknowledgement that the legal relationship has been formed. 
And even though the terms of the contract might not be finalized, to have a contract, you only need four elements. You need an offer, acceptance, some kind of consideration, and the intent to be legally bound. And that's this kind of this cerebral collision between two people, this, this mens rea almost of saying, well, I, I have intention to be legally bound, and I also have intention to be legally bound. And that intent is the key element, and that's found in conduct. So the way you conduct yourself, the courts will look at that and say, yeah, Brian showed intent to be bound because he replied to the email saying, yeah, cool, go for it, start working. You know, or he began making a payment, or he sent the, the code that the person needed, or the SDKs or whatever. So, yeah. so and, that, and that, that happens uh, every day. Well, that is good to know. I'm, I'm, a lot of the folks that listen to the show are, you know, independent developers and, and, mm -hmm. and folks that are doing their own thing. So it's good for them to know that, you know, that kind of thing exists. Sure, verbal agreement. And the devolver is the best. <laughs> exactly. Pleasure. This has been this has been lovely. <laughs> We've filled the whole hour, which is really difficult for us to do a lot of the time. Yeah, it's yeah, a real, it's, uh, This is really great. Oh, it's a real pleasure, guys. I, I've enjoyed it enormously. And if your listeners have you know any more write-in questions, we know we can. Uh, I'd be delighted ever to you know, to take them. We can do that. It'd be good fun. And when you want to talk about philosophy and books and religion and history and law, then uh, call me anytime. Love to join. Yeah. Excellent. Oh, that's my jam. <laughs> just, uh, just no science. I'm crap at science. <laughs> oh, man. Don't even get me started. Not even real. <laughs> it's just a method. Uh, well, um, sounds like it's about time for you to take us home, JM. Well, all right then, Robbie. I will express intent and acceptance to take us home. Uh, if you've enjoyed the Devolver Digital Forecast, you have bad taste in podcasts, but thank you for your bad taste in podcasts. You can follow us at uh, devolverdigital.com or wherever you found this podcast. If you want to get tweets from Devolver Digital corporate offices, you can follow at Devolver Digital on Twitter. And if you want to know about our streams, you can follow at Devolver PA on Twitter. That's Devolver Public Access. Or you can go to twitch.tv slash Devolver Digital. Do you like Discord and talking to other nerds about video game publishers? Oh, okay. Sure. <laughs> uh, well, then why not join the Devolver Digital Discord? Discord.gg slash Devolver Digital. We also have links on there to all of the Discords that exist for our games. So if you want to talk to people about Phantom Abyss or uh, Death's Door or uh, inscription, you know, you can find links to the, uh, the the discords for those. Do you like pictures of hot people on vacation but enjoy getting advertisements interspersed with your Instagram? Why not follow <laughs> Devolver Digital on Instagram? It's a wonderful opportunity to see ads for things that you should buy. We also have a TikTok. <laughs> <laughs>